0: Lord God, Heavenly Father, as your Son came to be the Word incarnate to open the words of sacred scripture and just tell us that today this is fulfilled in our hearing, for your Son has done all things well. And now in Him, the joy of the Lord is our strength. So teach us this day as we read your Word to see our Savior Jesus, to trust in him for all things needed, and let us live our lives in anticipation of his second coming, that we might look ahead to the day when he will come and make all things new. So bless us now in this hour. May your Holy Spirit guide us with wisdom. In Jesus' name. Okay, so we're in John's prologue. Remember the prologue of John. Um, the prologue yeah, like spell goofy. Uh the prologue is 1, one through 18. Okay. So after that, so then it's kind of 119 through the end of chapter 10 and then chapter 11 through 28 is the next section of the gospel. I mean sorry through 20. Sorry 28 is my favorite verse of 20. Uh, chapter 20 and then chapter 21 is an epilogue. So remember, John's gospel likes to do this framing thing where he likes to have this and then something like it at the end. He likes to work in circles. Or the the technical term for it is inclusio, which is a fun way to say things. Inclusio, which which word, the program word, always thinks is inclusion, which is annoying but it's not. Uh, Inclusio is actually a rhetorical device that you use that when you write or when you speak, um, you try to begin and end the same way or in a parallel way that'll remind people of the beginnings and ends. It just makes it easier to memorize things. It also kind of helps you make your point. So the Gospel of John is kind of structured with an inclusio. It has a beginning and an end and these sections even um, 119 to chapter 10 and chapter 11 to chapter 20. They also have inclusios and parallels within them. So we'll get there when we get there. Um, but we are, we are now in this section, 1 verses 1 through 18. And we are going to spend our time today on verses 15 through 18, which is a very important section as we head into the gospel. Um, one of the things that John does in the prologue is he kind of summarizes everything he's going to say in the rest of the gospel, but he uses words in the prologue that he doesn't use anywhere in the gospel. It's almost like he doesn't want to spoil it for us. Like he said, well, I used all those terms in the gospel, so I'm not going to use them here. I'm going to use different terms in the prologue, which freaks a lot of people out. But it's actually a really brilliant way to work, is that that the things in the prologue you almost want to think are going to be unpacked or explained in the rest of the gospel. So the stuff that we're learning in, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, is really the content of the rest of the gospel. Just really smushed together. Okay? Cool? So last week we spent a lot of time, matter of fact, the whole week, on one verse. So we're going to try to do three verses, which seems to be a lot, to, or actually four verses, kind of, um, which is going to be a lot to do in one day. So, any questions from last week? Okay, well, seeing none, let's read um, chapter 1, verses 15 through 18.
1: John (coughs) John testifies concerning him. He cries out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace we have all received. Grace upon grace, we have all received. uh, For the law was given through Moses; grace and truth now came through Jesus Christ. No one, no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him
0: known. Thank you very much. Okay, so, um, yeah, just just one quick note because this is really bizarre. Um, Do you have parentheses in your Bible at verse 15? Okay, some of you do, some of you don't. Here's the deal. and, and this is just to remember in general, that's not in the bi- that's not in the Greek text of John. There are no such things as parentheses in Greek. There are no quotation marks. There are no parentheses as when, when the Greek was originally written, there's no punctuation. So this is some editor's idea of how to punctuate this passage, which is really kind of bizarre because I have no idea why you'd put this in parentheses. Um, There's nothing in the text that would suggest this is a parenthetical statement. John will make parenthetical statements in his gospel, but when he does, he tells us he's going to. He'll say things like, you know, that is, or let the reader understand, or something like that, or just so you know. He'll actually say that. Just so you know, what this actually means is this. And there'll be like a little little parenthetical statement. But this, there's no reason to have parentheses here. So I don't know why they're there. Um, The other thing that you need to understand is that there are no quotation marks in Greek. So the beginning and ends of quotes are really hard to figure out, and that is especially true in the Gospel of John. We don't often know for sure who's speaking or when they're done speaking. John, as a writer, he liked to kind of smush together the actual words of Jesus or John the Baptist or Nicodemus or whoever it is plus his own commentary on it, the way he's writing his gospel. And you can't tell when the person's speaking and when this is John, the author, telling us stuff. We don't know. And this is actually an issue in, in verses 15 through 17. These could all be the words of John the Baptist. You could read the whole passage saying, And John bore witness and cried out, saying, quote, this was he of whom I said he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me and from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ period, In quote. You could say that. That actually would make total sense grammatically. As a matter of fact it would make more sense grammatically. Um, so just don't get distracted by all the, the little um, punctuation stuff in your Bible. It isn't the inspired part of the text. I know that's weird It might freak you out a little bit, but it's okay. It's okay. We'll get through it. Alright, so number one. Why is Jesus greater than John the Baptizer? What's that? Why? He was before him. How much before him? Eternally before him. Right. So, John the Baptist, John the Baptizer is saying... Jesus is eternal. Right? When, how, who is actually older? Jesus. Well, Jesus is way, but, but in, in terms of what people would look at them, John the Baptist was born first. About six months. Right? So John the Baptist is six months older than Jesus, but then John says, he was before me. And they're like, What? No, you're his older cousin, or whatever relationship they are. And John's saying, no, 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 he was before me. And he ranks above me. Right? So, so remember, Jesus came, or John came in, cha- in chapter 1, verse 6. A man was sent from, John, from God. His name was... You can look at it. What does it say? John and he came in order to bear witness about the light Jesus okay so John's job is to bear witness or to testify about Jesus it's not his job to talk about himself would it
1: have been a big deal for John to say that Jesus was before him like i know we talk a lot about brothers and the 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 lineage and the order you were born being mattering. Mm-hmm. Being from two separate mothers, is this, is this whole truth still? Does this yeah.
0: Well, it would be important because we would know he's not they, okay. they would know that he was older. Okay. I mean, they remember, John's birth was crazy. His mom was not young and she had been barren her whole life. And what was his dad's job? He was a priest, so he was like the pastor. So this was not exactly hidden. Everyone knew what was going on, right? And then Jesus is born, cousin to John, and his mom was not old or barren. She was young and unmarried. So these births were not exactly secret and and run-of-the-mill. So people would have known the timing of it. So then John all of a sudden shows up and goes, oh, he's older than I am. And they're all like, no, he's not. No, he's not. You're older than him. And John goes, no, he's older than I am. And he's greater than I am. Which is also weird because John is hanging out in the desert eating locust and wild honey. And one person said, I don't understand that diet. Anyway, it's a bad joke. I won't go there. <laughs> I, as I'm thinking a term like that, it, it, is, it is a funny joke, We have to have context. Um, so he's eating locusts and a wild honey. He's dressed like Elijah. And everyone's like, wow, you are amazing because when John preaches, who comes out to hear him? Everyone. All of Judea goes out to John the Baptist to be baptized by him in the Jordan River. And then when they get there, John says, this guy Jesus is way more important than I am. And they're all like, what? No way. You, you're, you're telling us that he's older than you, even though he was born six months after you, and he's more important than you, than you even though all of Judea is going out to you to hear the word of God. So his testimony does not necessarily make sense, but his job is to bear witness the truth about Jesus. So one of the things that we are going to encounter, we'll get to this next week when we start into the gospel itself in, chap- in verse 19, is that John is reliable. This is important because remember in John's Gospel, what's the point of John's Gospel? That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son Son of God. That's the point of the Gospel. So we've got to establish who's speaking the truth about Jesus that you can rely upon. And why is all this so important? Because through believing you have life. See, this is a matter of life and death. It's not just, well, you know, I'm on this side of the fence or that side, but no, this is a matter of life and death. So you better know who's reliable to tell you the truth about Jesus. And John is going to show us through this passage and then also through chapter one, verse 19 and following, that John is reliable. John is one of the people that you can listen to and he will tell you the truth about Jesus. Some, yeah. Was a priest, was he as a John the Baptist? Yeah. No, he was acting more like a prophet. Yeah, he was. He was not acting like a priest because he wasn't active in the temple, in the sacrificial system, in the you call it the cult. Um, you've got to remember this when you read Bibles things, and it says the cultus or the cult part of it just means the worship life. It doesn't mean like some weird group that. Does strange things. That has become that in our world, but in, in when you read theology, cult just kind of means the stuff around worship. The cultists. It's what you do. Okay? So anyway, John the Baptist wasn't involved in the temple and the sacrifices and the synagogue that kind of stuff. He was out in the wilderness preaching and dressed like a prophet. So he was more in line of a prophet than he was a priest. Even though his dad was a priest. Why
1: does John use
0: the word was instead
1: of is? Where? John
0: was before so he is before because he, because he's looking. This is this goes back the was, in this passage goes back to the was in John chapter one verse one. In the beginning was the word. It's not was as in this is going to be weird. It's it's, it's going to sound really strange. It's not was as in past tense. It's was as as in it didn't recently start. Those aren't the same thing. In English, we have very weird tenses. In Greek, they have a very different view of tense. In Greek, there's not as much an idea of past tense. There really isn't a strict past tense in Greek. And this is why Bible translation gets a little strange sometimes. There is more in in Greek and and also in Semitic languages like Hebrew... Um, there's, there's less a uh, uh, focus on the passage of time in a linear means and it's more a focus on actions that are, have been completed actions that were done, actions that are continuing to affect things and actions that are presently going on it's not so much happened in the past it's more was fulfilled and is still affecting us um, or punctiliar action that isn't continuing Like those are the different tenses Does that, that doesn't make any sense so basically the tense that is used here is not a past tense. It's a not brand new occurrence. It's something that, that's continuing. It's a continuance idea. Okay? All right, number two. How do we get grace upon grace? So in 16, and from his, his, his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. him coming at their time. Okay. We're blessed with him coming, what was the verse you said? At, at their time. At their time. At, at his time. Yeah, but this is written for people that are after his time. So how have we now received? See, it's, it changed to we. So how have we all received grace upon grace? You're right. Just stop with the weird, the ending. Go back to the beginning of what you said. Because Jesus came. Okay. So the coming of Jesus, the coming of Jesus as God in the flesh is grace plus grace. This is weird. Um, what, this is actually a very um, controverted phrase in biblical theology. What exactly does grace upon grace mean? especially because the context of the passage is really looking back at the Old Testament and the coming of Jesus as compared to the Old Testament giving of the law. So now we're getting into the whole idea of God came to his people. When did God come to his people in the Old Testament? What's the big event in the Old Testament where God shows up with his people? The Exodus. Exodus. Okay? So after they get out of Egypt, when does God meet his people? Where? On the mountain. mountain. Which mountain? Sinai. Sinai. And what does he give him there? What does he give to his people on Mount Sinai? The The law. Okay? So God comes to his people through the Torah. Right? Through the law. And that is grace. Okay? This is one way to understand it. That is grace. God comes to his people and gives them the law. Let's go look at it. Exodus chapter 20. Okay. Exodus, which is the second book of the Old Testament, right? So go all the way back to the end of the Bible. Exodus chapter 20. And God is going to show up to his people. Is it, is it God the Father and Israel having a conversation? Is it? Is that how it works? No. I- no. God shows up and talks to who? Moses. And Moses represents the people of God. Now, is it God the Father talking to Moses? No. Does God the Father show up and talk? No. That's not who does the talking for God. Who is, who is the Word of God? Jesus. So now we have Jesus... And an intermediary and the people of God. So this is the way God works. God has a a mediator between him and his people. So this is going to be very similar to John the Baptist is actually serving as this intermediary at this point. But God is going to come to his people. And so what he's saying is the first time this happened, it was grace. Look at what it says. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 and 2. So someone read that for us. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. God spoke all these words, saying, "I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery." Okay, so the first thing God says in His law is what? I'm the Lord your God, God who did what? Who saved you? Who got you out of Egypt? So this is grace. God's relationship to His people is not based on their works, but on His Grace. grace. His work. His action to save. God's relationship to his people is based not on their works but on his action to save them. Basically, God is Lutheran. (laughs) Right? If he's not, I don't want to be. Okay? But this is the whole idea, is that God comes to his people and in the Torah we learn that God comes to his people in order to save them that's the first action of God and the reaction to God's saving is that God's people do what? (laughs) what do you do after God saves you when God asks to save you what do you do in response? you. you thank him and the way you thank him is you do what? You witness. What else? Praise him. Proclaim him. You guys are really pious.
1: And I think all I can do, all I am is send more.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, you send more. <laughs> and you go back to forgiveness. Word and sacrament. That's how he comes to save you. Serve our neighbor. Whose will do you follow? His will. Do you follow your will? But you're not supposed to. <laughs> yeah, like, so you're like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but see, the point is when God saves us, the proper reaction is okay, you're the God who saves, then I'll do what you want. You're the God who saves me. So it'd be really good if I lived according to your will, because that means I will be saved. If the primary thing we know about God is that he saves us and he loves us, then what fear is there in living according to his will? You're going to get saved and loved. You okay with that? And the good news is it lasts forever and ever and ever and ever. So I might suggest doing what he wants. Yeah? No, it's us doing something because we're saved. Yes, that's why the Bible sounds weird sometimes because it sounds like it's saying to do this to, in order to be saved. But no, it's always you're doing this because you're saved. But if you stop doing his will, you are in danger of no longer being saved because now you're saying to him, no thanks. I don't want your salvation. I want to do what I want to do. Right? Did, but then
1: there's Paul who said, the good I want to do, I don't right. do. No, 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 no,
0: I stink <laughs> at all of this. Right? So then when it comes back to, okay, I want to do your will, but I failed. Are, are you still a God who loves me? Then we go back to the most important thing we know about God is that he is a God who forgives, forgives and saves. Right? See, it's not whether or not I'm able to fulfill my part of the deal. It's that I learn to always look at him as a God who saves, and I desire to conform my life to his will. Now, the fact that I stink at doing that doesn't actually change the fact that he's always the God who saves. But if I get to the point where I say, no, thanks, God, I don't want your will, I like my will better, and I don't even want to try, and I'm not sorry, then he says, fine, try it your way. And you end up well, Where? where he is not. <laughs> so, try to live without God's provisions. Go ahead, <clears throat> try it. Just don't don't think you're going to be able to take a breath or eat any food or, you know, live in this world because that's all his. That's called hell. Would
1: it be fair like he's he says, come, receive my body and blood Yeah. for the forgiveness and remission of sins. Yeah. It's a sacrament. Yeah. Old Testament. Yeah. Slaughter this, receive the forgiveness yes. of sins. Yes, that's I right. I mean, it's really, it's not a works thing at all, but it's still kind of a means of grace. I uh-huh. Mean, can you say that about yes. the Old Testament stuff?
0: You can. Um, the Old Testament sacrificial system, the circumcision, the, the Torah, it is... The prophecy of the New Testament sacrifice sacraments. Okay, so they're there sacraments, and this is the way the Book of Hebrews talks about it, is that the forgiveness that was that was present in those sacrifices, in those Old Testament things, was not through the blood of goats. Even then, the blood that forgave was the blood of Jesus. Those things were effective because of the death of Jesus. Those things gave life because of the resurrection of Jesus. The way God did it was through blood, of bulls and goats and whatever, whatever, right? All the sacrificial things. That's the way he did it, but that was actually effective because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. The promise of the coming Messiah and God's completion and fulfillment of that promise for his people is the means through which God forgives his people. It's not through the actual sacrifice of the goat, Right? Same with circumcision. Circumcision was given, and it actually did what God said it would. Do it include you in God's people, all this kind of stuff. But it's not really the deal. See, it's just kind of prophesying the fulfillment of it, which is found where? Are there any children present? Okay. Who's the one who's cut off? Right? A circumcision is a cutting off? You guys know that, right? Okay, so who's the one who's cut off and causes the the shedding of blood, and the one who's cut off and his blood now welcomes you into the family of God, his name is Jesus. Jesus. And so, do we have anything that joins you to the death and resurrection of Jesus that we do for children when they're, I don't know, like eight days old? Do you have anything like that? Right? See, it all points us ahead to baptism. And what does Paul say in Romans chapter 6? This baptism joins you to the death and resurrection of jesus it includes you in the people of god so then isaiah 43 verse 1 hero hero israel the one who formed you or jacob the one who created you i i lord your god i call you by name and you are mine and we hear that we go ooh, that's baptism and then it goes on he says you will pass through the waters and i will be with you like seriously isaiah 43 1 is a baptismal text why because in Christ, it's fulfilled. Why, why can circumcision and the food laws and the sacrificial system and all the Torah become for us means of grace that we understand as God's gracious action on our behalf? Because it's all fulfilled in Jesus. Okay? So that's the grace. So here's, here's grace the first time and now we get grace added to that It's actually through the death and resurrection of Jesus that God comes to us. So we get grace upon grace, okay? A grace added to grace. We just keep getting more grace, right? You thought it was cool that God came to you and saved you from Egypt. You thought it was cool that God came to you in, your, in the Torah. You thought it was cool <laughs> that God brought you out of exile back to the promised land. You thought all this was great. You think the prophets were great. Thinking David was great. All the massive promises. Yeah, that's all great. You think the book of Psalms is great? Yeah, but we've got something better. Something better than patriarchs. Something better than all these Old Testament sacrifices. Something better than circumcision. Something better than all this, right? Something better. And what is that? Jesus. So
1: you're saying that he's specifically saying here, this is Old Testament stuff. It's just not, all God's grace upon grace. No. um, It's just he's specifically making it. He's
0: specifically making that statement. And I'll show you in a second why we think that. Because you know, that's what we do. So, all that stuff is now over. All the Old Testament stuff is over. You can just get rid of it. Done. Hebrews says that it's obsolete. The ending of Hebrews 8 says that's all old. It's all been fulfilled in Christ. It's obsolete. Done. So, number three, is the law bad? Well,
1: no, we just
0: said it's the first grace. Yeah. See, no, the law is not bad because it's the first grace. Even in a Lutheran dynamic of law and gospel, is law bad? No. It is still the will of God. Right? We, by the power of the Holy Spirit, learn to rejoice in the law. We rejoice to hear how God desires for us to live. Why? Because God is the God who saves, so if he wants us to do something, it's probably for a pretty good reason. God created this whole world in every single person in it. He's the one who gave us our reason, our senses, and our house and home, and ox and cattle, and all those kind of stuff you got. So if he tells you how to use them, he probably has the best idea. Right? Me, who is incredibly selfish and very short-sighted, I have better ideas than God, I'm sure if you only knew what I knew, right? See, and this is the problem, is is we start thinking of of law and gospel as law is bad, let's get rid of it, let's just move to the gospel. No, uh uh-uh. The law of God is holy and righteous and good. Even when it condemns me as a sinner, it is good. Well, if we didn't
1: feel we were
0: sinful, we wouldn't be saviors. Savior. Exactly. So, so not only is it good because of the will of God, it also drives us continually to Jesus. Okay? So just a quick review. When we're talking about the law, remember law in, in biblical terms really is usually the translation of the Hebrew word Torah, which is, In some ways, not just commandments, but it's also all the good news about God, including his salvific acts, right? I, the Lord your God, have called you out of Egypt. That's part of the Torah. But in Lutheran parlance, law is the stuff that we do or don't do. And and the law is properly the will of God. Okay? And the way I say it this way is because Part of the function of the law is to convict us of our sins and to reveal to us that we are guilty and deserving punishment. Okay? So as Lutherans, we're not going to get through all three verses. As Lutherans, (laughs) we talk about, and again, we just made this up. This isn't in the Bible. Okay? But in 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 Lutheran circles, we talk about the law having three functions. Which okay? is kind of kind of weird. That's not really what it means. It's better to say the law functions or affects the hearers in three ways. Right? The law is up there like functioning. Um, but the law kind of has three ways that it hits you when you hear it. What's the first way? It's a curve. Okay? It's a curve. That means it stops you from doing something stupid because of the fear of punishment. I don't know if my daughter's going to listen to this or not, but I'm going to tell you this anyway. One of my daughters said to me, I, I, I'm so mad at you. And I'm like, okay, that makes sense. Why? She said, because every time I go to do something, I hear your voice in my head. And it stops me from doing it. And I'm like, yes! And she's like, no, it drives me nuts. And I said, that was my goal. Right? Yes, yeah, to drive her nuts. But also because part of our discipline of our children is you're you're putting things around them, not because you're mean, but because you're you love them and you know that, that things outside of this boundary are really bad for you. It could really hurt you. Right? It starts when they're very little and and they encounter the thing in the kitchen where there's fire on it. Right? And you say don't don't touch the stove. It's because I hate you and I don't ever want you to cook. No, it's because you know what? They're going to get hurt. And you're happy when they walk in and they're like, "Ooh, stove on, I'm staying away." You're go, "Yes, good. Stay away. It's dangerous." Right? So part of the law is it says, "Don't do bad things, so you'll go to hell." Is that true? It's absolutely true. No innocent people are in hell. No sinless people are in hell. Hell is for the, the devil, the angels who fell, and all the sinners who are following their way. That's what it's for. Scott? I'd say yes, but, because obviously people
1: do bad things and we're still...
0: Why are you bringing the gospel into this? I'm talking about the law. Yeah, yeah. See, that's the point. This is kind of the point, right? When you're talking law, you got to stay talking law. The law is not the gospel and the gospel is not the law. We got to keep them distinct and understand how they work together and why God gives us one and the other, not one or the other. Okay, so when you're talking law, this is the part of the worship service where you say, I, a poor, miserable sinner. And everyone's going, yeah, but we're saved. It's like, no, 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 we're not talking about that right now. We're talking about me in my sin. What am I? Poor, miserable sinner. How have you sinned? I don't love my neighbor as myself. I don't love God with my whole heart or even three-fourths of it. You know, I've sinned in thought, word, deed. And what do I deserve? Temporal and <coughs> eternal punishment. That's what we say. Is it true? Yes. When you look at you according to your sin, that is true. So the law hits you and says, don't do bad things, you will be punished. That's one effect of the law or function of the law. The second is a mirror. And this is probably the most prominent way that Lutherans and all Christians hear the law is it reveals to us that we are not perfect. Perfect. When your pastor says to you, you should be selfless and serve everybody in your life instead of yourself, the one effect that has is, ooh, I'm not doing that. I'm not living up to that standard, okay? And that reflects back to us and shows us that we are sinners. I am a sinner. When I read the law, it reveals to me the fact that I am a sinner. I have not lived up to God's will. Right? Okay? And the third way it works is as a guide, or if you kicking old school, was it ruler? Yeah. They keep changing the catechism. I can't keep up. Um, but the guide, then, it shows us how to live, and that's where we see the will of God for our life. So part of the function of the law is not to condemn you. Part of it is to just to encourage you to live the right way. Right? So the pastor says, hey, good news, all your sins are forgiven because of Jesus. You go, great, now what do I do? And he says, well, love your neighbor. Love God. Right? And it, it doesn't always have to condemn you. It could be like, oh, good, I was kind of wondering what I should do. And it tells you what to go do. So, go Do it. Right? See, sometimes the law hits you in such a way you're like, I really want to know what God wants me to do in this situation. And you guys actually live here a whole lot more than you want to admit is that you're waking up and you're like, you know what? If I actually knew what God wanted, I'd go do it. The problem is you can say it out loud. What's the problem? I don't know what his will is because he doesn't seem to tell me when I ask him. I say, God, here's the thing. I'm totally, I'm all into this you being God, me not thing. Just tell me what to do. And then pretty soon you get desperate and you become very un-Lutheran and you say, just give me a sign because the whole Lutheran thing isn't working. So we'll try signs. And then you're looking around like a crazy person looking at everything that happened in your life as though it might be a sign from God. A squirrel ran across the street. Could that mean? You're like, no, it's a squirrel, hit it. yeah love animals unless they're eating your house and then you kill them that's right have them for dinner unless it's a rat with a tail and you just wipe it out okay so so what we're saying is the law right so the law remember the law is the will of god so the law is good And when the law functions in one of these three ways. Now remember, every single bit of law can and will function in one of these three ways every time you hear it. And you can't determine this. This is something the Holy Spirit does. You might need to hear the law as curve. You might need to hear it as mirror. You might need to hear it as guide. And you might hear the same law in different ways at different times. Okay, so this is not for us to determine. This is just how the Holy Spirit works law in our hearts. But the point of all this, the law then drives us to, we need someone to save us. Because I have not lived up to God's standards. I do not deserve his salvation or his gifts. I actually have disqualified myself from being included in his children. I need someone to save me, okay? So let's go back to John chapter 1. And what does it say? For the law was given through Moses, okay? So he's pointing us right back to Exodus 20, and more importantly, Exodus 33 and 34, okay? So most importantly, Exodus 33 to 34. This is really the illusion that John is making here. Exodus 33 and 34. So what happened? God gave the law in Exodus 20. That's the Ten Commandments. And Moses came down and said, here's the deal. Here's all the stuff you're supposed to do. And the people of Israel said, sounds great. We'll do it. And then God's law was so wonderful they were like, we're going to do it, and they did what? They built a golden calf and worshipped it instead of God and started having sex parties. To show how thankful they are for all that God has done to them, they built an idol and started having sex parties. Because Moses was away and they thought, well, our pastor doesn't know what we're doing. No problem. So Moses comes down, and what does he do? You've seen the movie.
1: Breaks he
0: breaks the tablets. And God's like, I wrote those. What? Ah! Oh. Come back up. I'll write a second copy. Right? He hadn't saved a, a copy on the cloud. that's why we
1: have 10 instead of 15, because, you know, the third
0: tablet was too <laughs> much. Exactly. Third tablet was too much. Yeah. Um, so he does. And in Exodus 33 and 34, we have the re-giving of the law. Right, the rewriting of the law, yes. and we have Moses encountering God, and this is the big thing. Um, so number four, how is Jesus the fulfillment of the Old Testament? This is what we're gonna. This is what we're gonna look at. So, <clears throat> yeah, wow. Okay, let's go to Exodus thirty-three and thirty-four. I really thought we were gonna get through. No, we're not. <laughs> Which is too bad because it's my favorite. <laughs> Exodus 33 and 34.
1: not bad. I mean, you know, too much to get through
0: the prologue. That's right. Take a couple months to get through a prologue. No big deal. Oh, boy. So in 32, you just get the, the awful golden calf stuff, right? And 33, reading in verse 12, you get the intercession of Moses... Okay? And then in 33, let's just start at verse 17. Okay? Exodus 33, verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know your name. Moses said, please show me your glory. (laughs) Right? So you see that we got glory words going on here. Remember in, in verse fourteen, we have seen his glory. 114, John 1.14, in Jesus, we have seen his glory. In Exodus thirty-three, Moses says, Show me your glory. Okay. So there's a lot going on here. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Now we have that. There's that grace upon grace phrase right there. Do you see it? Grace and mercy tied together. Verse 20, But you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand till I pass by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my backside which is a fun thing for God to say. But my face you shall not see or shall not be seen. Okay? So then he does it. And I want you to go skip down because we're running out of time to verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. Who's the God that shows up to hang out with his people? Is that the first person of Trinity? Nope. Is it the third person of Trinity? Nope. It's what person of Trinity? The second. So who is this? His name is Jesus. Okay. So the Lord descended in a cloud stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Now listen. This is the one of the most impo- important passages of the entire Old Testament. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord. So Yahweh, Yahweh. He says his name twice. You ever heard Jesus speak when he says, Amen, Amen, I say to you? Yeah. Who do you think he is? He's the guy that says, Yahweh, Yahweh, right? The Lord, the Lord. Now listen to this. Yahweh is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's who Yahweh is the most important passage of the entire Old Testament right there. This is the passage that defines the entire Old Testament. It's recapitulated again and again and again and again. Okay? Psalm 136 is actually just this passage over and over and over and over explained. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. This is the refrain of Israel. Okay? Um a very good friend of mine just wrote a dissertation and I'm not I'm mad at him because I edited it. Um it's six hundred and eighty pages long, which is why I was mad at him. But it talks about this passage and Exodus twenty, which has a parallel passage, as the foundational passages of, of the Old Testament. And it's 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 phenomenal. It's so ridiculously good. It's ridiculous. That's how good it is. Um But this is the point. So so John is saying, he's wanting you to know this in your head, this, this thing with Moses and God. And he's saying, now God has shown up and you can now see his glory. You are better off than Moses. You think it's impressive that Moses went up on the mountain and saw God and stuff? Well, guess what? He couldn't see him. But in Jesus... You see him. And you get not just the law of Moses, you also now get grace upon grace because through Moses came the law, but what comes through Jesus Christ? Grace and truth. Yeah, life at the end. But here, grace and truth, which, by the way, is the Greek translation of the words in Exodus 34 that God used to describe himself full of grace and truth. Okay? So, what he's saying is, is that in Jesus, you get all of God. You get all the Old Testament stuff and all the New Testament stuff. You get all the law and all the gospel. You get the presence of God. You get the intercession of God. You get it all in Jesus Christ. When you get Jesus, you get all of God. When you don't get Jesus, how much of God do you get? None. This is the point of the Gospel of John. If you want to see God, look at Jesus. If you don't see God in Jesus, you'll never see him anywhere. You will only see hiddenness. If you wanna see what Moses wanted to see, look at Jesus. And remember, when John is talking about Jesus, he's always, most importantly, talking about his death. When John is gonna to talk to you about Jesus, the way you know him the best is you see him on a cross. Okay, it all leads there. Okay, any questions? We have four minutes to do my favorite verse, which is really weird.
1: <clears throat>
0: Probably not going to finish it in four minutes. Okay, so number five. How do you know God? Look at verse 18. It says, how does it start? No one has ever seen God. Oh boy. Didn't we just say we saw him? Didn't we just get through this whole section in which we allude to a place where Moses does see God? And in Exodus 24, 11, it says that the elders of Israel went up on a mountain, they saw God, and they ate and they drank. And now God, and now John says, no one has ever seen God. So, what does God mean here?
1: God the
0: Father. Right. This means God the Father. Explicitly. And we'll see how the verse plays out. This is, this is very explicitly God the Father. So this verse really should read, no one has ever seen God the Father. Go back to verse 1. Right? Go back to verse 1 of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So the God that the Word was with is the one that no one has ever seen. Okay? We're, right, we're now completing the circle from the beginning of the prologue to the end of the prologue. We're now going to reintroduce this idea of God and the Son of God as, as different things. You have the Word and you have God and they're different and yet the Word is God. How many gods you got? One. And yet the Word is God and there's a God that is also God that isn't the Word. So that seems like there's two but there's only one. One. Welcome to the Trinity. Because there's another one that's going to come along whose name is the Spirit. He's also God, and yet it's not the Father and not the Son. So there's three. But how many gods are there? One. Right? So then John wrote the Athanasian Creed. I'm just kidding, I'm not the Athanasian Creed. <laughs> but then the Church wrote the Athanasian Creed to help us understand all this. What do you mean there's another one that comes along? The Spirit. But well, we haven't mentioned him yet. Yeah, but had, John hasn't mentioned him yet. In John, he hasn't come along yet. Remember, John always does this. Same thing's true in the epistle. The Holy Spirit doesn't get mentioned for a while. He kind of just stays there in the background. And then all of a sudden, once John mentions him, he's all over the place. But he kind of holds off. It, it's called John's Benetarian theology, which is kind of what scholars say about it, that he seems to operate with Father, Son as his predominant view of God, and then all of a sudden the Spirit comes in and once the Spirit comes in, the Spirit is essential. So that John is the one that says, do you know how you know the Father and the Son? Because the Spirit will lead you into all truth. See? He's essential. But we're not going to definitely mention him all the time. But
1: he was there in, in Genesis 1.
0: Yes, he is. The Spirit is eternally there with the Father and the Son. So he's there in every act of God. He's there in Exodus 33 and 34. He's there He's just not always mentioned or always explicitly described. Yeah, in Genesis 1-2. Right, he is explicitly there. No doubt. So you have Father, Son, Holy Spirit at the creation. No doubt. And he'll be in there in the end. He just don't talk about it that much. Okay, so no one has ever seen God. He's unseeable, which remember in Greek philosophy if you can't see something you can't
1: no.
0: know it. So how do you know God? Through the God that you can see. Can you see the Father? Can you see the Spirit? Are they knowable? Only in Jesus. Now, go interact with this world that says... Oh, all religions worship God. They just get there in different ways. And we say, actually, no, you can't know God outside of Jesus, right? That is the teachings of the Holy Scriptures. We're not just being poopy. That's, that's actually the way the Bible teaches. So you can't know God outside of Jesus. So when you're reading this verse, you're, when it says, um, okay, so no one has ever seen God then when he goes on to say, the only God who is at Father's side, then he's stopped. Now he's talking about Jesus. That's Jesus. So the first phrase is about God the Father. The, the second phrase is about Jesus. So if you didn't know that, it would all happen. Yeah. That's why you got to kind of, as, as one scholar said, there are certain books that are written to be read once and be thrown away. He said, his, his example was, I'm not making, this isn't my word. You can get mad at him if you want. He said, Louis L'Amour, is written to be, to be read on a plane ride and thrown away when you're done, right? You don't have to reread it again. He said, most mystery novels, once you know who done it, you don't need to reread it. There are other books that are written to be read over and over, and every time you read them, they get better and better. He said, The Gospel of John is ones you have to read over and over, because if you don't know how it ends, you won't understand the beginning, right? And if you read it at the beginning, the end doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It's just, it's just made to be read. So yeah, you, can't, you don't understand it until you've understood it. And then once you understand it, you're like, oh, I understand. Yeah, it's really hard. Which is why the Gospel of John is one of the hardest books to interpret. It's also one of the easiest books to interpret. It's just the way it goes. It's the way John wrote. Okay? We've got to get going. I, really, seriously. Next week we'll spend it, yeah... Okay, full disclosure. Most of you guys know this by now. I wrote a 200-page paper on the phrase, no one has ever seen God. I wrote 210 pages just on that phrase. So that's why it might take me a while to get through all this. I have a lot in my head. Okay? So, anyway, let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, In your Son, Jesus Christ, you have revealed yourself to us as a God of love, a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, who forgives the sins and iniquities of your people. Lord, we need that love. We need that forgiveness. We need Jesus. And so we rejoice this day that your answer to our need is always the fulfillment of your promises and the sure and certain promise fulfillment of your love through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Teach us each and every day to love your word, to rejoice in your law, and to seek your love. Lord, allow us to go forth from this place as your servants, loving you with our whole heart and loving our neighbors as ourselves. Draw us once again to our Savior Jesus and keep us there in him in joy and peace. In Jesus' name. Thank you all.